Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. My name is Andrew Sola, the founder and producer of the show. We always do our best to give you the highest audio quality. However, recording over the internet can lead to some blip sounds. Please forgive these small audio glitches. Also, today I'm happy to announce that you will hear some variations on the transatlanticist theme by Gunter Donner, who is our resident expert on the EU, and he's also a fantastic pianist. Take it away, Gunter. Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. And today we'll be discussing the novel Min The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. My guest today is Adam Roberts. Adam Roberts is a writer and academic. He's written 22 novels, various short stories, lots of academic books and articles. His day job is professor of 19th century literature and culture at Royal Holloway, University of London. And his most recent novel is Purgatory Mount, which is published by Golantz in this very year we are in now, 2021. Uh, welcome, Adam. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us on Novel Romantics. Um, as I said, today we're going to discuss Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And as always, on Novel Romantics, we'll avoid any plot spoilers as we go along. Um, Adam, I wanted to start. You're like, you know more about science fiction than literally anyone I know. And um, which is, I was about to say, which means anyone, but like, it's like I know everyone. <laughs> therefore, I you really hang out with cool friends. You need, yeah. to, you need to befriend more geeks. That's your problem. <laughs> um, you're the only person who knows anything about science fiction that I know would be <laughs> that's not fair either. Um, anyway, you also loaned me this book and told me you should read this book. And so I did read this book as you told me to. And I wonder if you, just to start us off, you could just say a little bit about who Kim Stanley Robinson is, and then we can move into talking about the novel uh, in particular. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a, a one of the main figures in contemporary science fiction. If you look at the front of the copy that I kindly lent you, which uh, you can keep, actually, that's fine. It says, one of the world's finest working novelists in any genre, The Guardian. That was me. Those are my words. That's me reviewing one of his earlier novels for The Guardian. Uh, and I've, I've met him a couple of times. I wouldn't say I know him. Um, he's not prolific, but when he puts a book out, it's a major event. So he started producing work in the 1980s. He did a series, a trilogy called Three Californias, with three novels, each imagining a different future for California. One of them is a, a post-war wasteland, one a techno-dystopia, and one a, a positive utopian vision of how things might go. And that's one of the things that interests me about him as a writer. It's easy when, you, when you're writing, particularly science fiction, to, to push the apocalypse button and go for horrors and dystopias and misery. Robinson is one of the few writers I can think of today who's genuinely interested in utopia as a, as a mode. Uh, his, he came to real prominence, I think, with his Mars trilogy, Red, Mars, Blue Mars, and Green Mars, which was in the early 90s, which is three enormous novels. They're each about a 1,000 pages long, detailing in, in breathtaking and well-researched detail how we might terraform Mars, or as he puts it, 
Ariaform Mars, because Terra is the Earth and Aries is Mars, so it will be Ariaforming the red planet and making it habitable. And, and by the end of Blue Mars, it's it's kind of a utopian space. It's The wilderness has been remade. Since then, he's become increasingly concerned with climate change, and that's what Ministry for the Future is about. It's a, it's a hefty engagement, not just in the horrors of what change might bring, but the ways in which we might want to address it. I think, I don't know if we want to talk about this, maybe we'll get onto it in a little bit. As a writer, I think he's a very fine writer. He takes a lot of care and he puts kind of craft into what he's doing. But he's notorious amongst science fiction fans for how full-throatedly he embraces the info dumps, what science fiction fans call that <laughs> bit in a novel where one character turns to another and says, as you know, Bob, the, the operation of the hyperspace engine is X, Y, and Z, and then explains it all, ostensibly for the, for the benefit of the other character, but actually to bring the for readers the benefit up to of the reader. Yeah. Yeah. This is what this is. Um, so I, you kind of already anticipated one of the things I wanted to talk about and one of the questions I was going to ask you, because you wrote a, a blog post, which I think we can put the link to in our description of the of the of the podcast. So you might, in fact, be listening to this podcast right now, looking at the very link to which I'm referring, um, in which you kind of say, I like this novel to a point, but after that point, not so much. And one of the points that you that you raise in that blog is is the info dump. And and I think. I don't know, from my point of view, somewhat unfairly, you criticize one one part of the info dump, but also at the same time, I think you have a point. But also one of the things that I think is interesting about this novel, having never read a novel by him before, I don't really have the uh, expertise or like, I'm not one of those SF fans who who has an, uh, an opinion already about Kim Stanley Robinson and his info dumps, which I, I wonder whether that makes me approach the novel differently. But um, mm. I kind of, it's almost a lot of this novel, like, you know, I said at the beginning, we were not going to have any um, spoiler alerts, but like for the second episode in a row, I'm not sure it's possible to have a spoiler alert for this novel because not much really happens <laughs> in it. Um, and it is in part, and I, I have some um, highfalutin ideas about this that I, I'd like to quiz you on. Its mode is kind of the info dump, like the info dump as narrative mode. There's so many, so many chapters that are just about giving information or exploring information that like when the characters are are telling each other things that they might know or might not know, it's if it's it's a, it feels like a different thing to me. But um having said all that, one of the <laughs> one of the things that made me laugh when you were saying that you know, when characters explain ostensibly for the benefit of the other character is like, this is exactly as a teacher of creative writing, the kind of thing I tell my students never ever to do, right? Like characters should never be telling other characters things they already know that the author is just putting there so that the reader can understand. Cause that's not really what, what dialogue is about. I agree with you. And I tell my students the same thing because it seems often when it's done just clumsy yeah. and it's not that people never explain things to one another in yeah. fact people in real life often do but it can just seem very kind of graceless and lumpen when you when you crowbar that stuff into your story there are yeah. there are more elegant ways in which you can communicate and bring the reader up to speed and there's the other problem of course which is one of the things i'm always telling my students and I'm, i don't know i assume you say something similar i mean it, these are cliches show don't tell less is more but less is more <laughs> you you overload the reader with too much detail and data, and it just bags the book down. The, the yeah. reader needs to have more room to move through it. What I would say in defense of 
Stan, as as people call him, I suppose because it's his name, is <laughs> he's he's owning the info dump. He's not yeah. kind of in a slightly embarrassed way pushing a few pieces of information to us because we need them in order to understand the story. He's inhabiting the info dump. The info dump is the whole horizon of his aesthetic yeah. practice in this novel, and I, that's something kind of admirable about that. I was thinking about it this morning, knowing I was going to talk to you, and knowing how much you love um, Moby Dick. <laughs> I actually have Moby Dick written novel. down. I have Moby Dick written down in my notes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming I'm, just all. Moby Dick down, whatever the conversation, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever the environment. <laughs> Small talk with the mailman. I must mention Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Um, yeah, but I mean, that is a novel of, that is hundreds of pages of info dumping, some of it very much wrong about, like, you know, like, here's why a here Well, you know, like, he, he there's a whole chapter about why a whale is a fish. And he, and, he, and he basically says, this is all the reasons why a whale is not like a fish, but it's a fish, you know. Um, but that's really interesting to me, because that's, that is one of the ways in which science fiction ages much more rapidly than regular fiction. Mm-hmm. That if you read science fiction from the 1920s or 30s, the assumption was, let's say, Venus, was a planet covered in clouds, and with clouds there'd be a great ocean, and there were. And it's not true. So to now to read those those stories is to make you think, no, that's just wrong. And Stan Robinson is in that kind of situation. He's been doing it long enough now. So in the mm-hmm. Red Mars books, he uses the science as it was then best understood about Mars. Some of which has now been disproved, and he's writing. He keeps coming back to it in a sort of irritated way, mentioning it in his later books about the alkalinity of Martian soil, let's say, which he <laughs> underestimated for Red Mars. So apparently it now seems the soil is massively alkaline and will never be able to grow any crops in it. And this is there's a built-in obsolescence, which is ironic because these are supposedly for, you know, future-set, forward-looking, exciting stories. And a whale's a fish in a, in a larger sense, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, and that's his point. And that's, that's, I guess, Melville's or Ishmael's point in Moby Dick. But so I want to come back to this idea. Um, I mean, I, as you know, we'll talk about Moby Dick for till the cows come home, till the whales come home. <laughs> till the whales but, come home. Yes. Yeah, but um, but actually, I I want to come back to Kim Stanley Robinson's use of the info dump as like you said he owns it and it's an aesthetic mode for him. And this brings me exactly to the highfalutin thing I wanted to talk about because. Um, and partly what I wrote in relation in my note in relation to Moby Dick. So everything comes together perfectly right at the beginning for me, which is obviously the most important part of this podcast. So this novel is dedicated to Frederick Jameson. Yeah. And so for people who don't know who Frederick Jameson is, who are listening, he's a, I guess, a philosopher, critical theorist, literary scholar, scholar of many things, who wrote a really famous essay in, is it 1984, which was then expanded into a book in 1991 called Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. There's a, so I was thinking, because I saw that dedication, I was thinking about Jameson the whole time I was reading this novel. And I'm, I'm going to quote Jameson from that essay. Because I think it's re- I think it's relevant, and I think it's important as a or useful as a way of thinking about what Kim Stanley Robinson is up to in this novel. So Jameson, somewhere in that essay, says this. He says, "What is affirmed is not that we cannot know the world and its totality in some abstract or quote unquote scientific way. 
Marxian science proves just such a way of knowing and conceptualizing the world abstractly in the sense in which, for example, Mandel's great book offers a rich and elaborated knowledge of that global world system of which it has never been said here that it was unknowable, but merely that it was unrepresentable, which is a very different matter. And he goes on to talk about um, and what he calls an aesthetic of cognitive mapping um, and, and says that we have to invent um, radically new forms in order to do justice to this idea that the world is knowable but not representable. Now, I've never quite bought this argument of Jameson's. I like the idea that the world is knowable but not representable, but the idea that this requires in the invention of radical new art forms has always seemed a little bit stupid to me, partly because of things like Moby Dick, where it's like, well, it's a, it was a pretty radical form itself. It's, it still seems like a pretty radical form of novel to me. But when it comes to the Ministry of the Future, there's all these chapters that just offer little mini essays on on subjects that are that matter to the plot of the novel, that matter to the to the narrative of the of the novel, but do seem to be trying to, in some aesthetic way, create this idea of a of a of a map of information about the world that. They're not trying to represent that world. They're trying to give us access to uh, understanding or knowing the world, which I think is a was really interesting to me as I read this book to think about and to engage with as a reader coming to this author for the first time. I don't know what you think about that. I mean, it's really it's really fascinating, isn't it? So he, Robinson has known Jameson for a long time. Jameson supervised his his PhD, which was on Philip K. Dick, the, another American science fiction writer, a very different sort of writer to Robinson, but. He stayed friends with him. He quite often uses Jamesonian ideas, works it into his fiction. There's quite a lot of Jameson in the, the Mars books, for instance. I mean, I'm quite intrigued by that quotation that you pulled out. So when he talks about Mandel's great book, Mandel is the guy who comes up with the phrase late capitalism. So that's your main problem. If you're a Marxist, Marx says capitalism it will inherently destroy itself because it's fundamentally based on you know competition and it's a violent system. It will fall apart. It will fall apart soon, he says, in the middle of the 19th century. And here we are <laughs> in the beginning of the 21st century, and it hasn't fallen apart. Soon so, is a relative term, Adam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, like fish encompasses whale in some sense. So Mandel was a theorist who said, well, it, obviously capitalism has proved more, in, more durable than Marx said it would. But it's not the same as it was back in Marx's day. We've now entered into late capitalism. And his big, I mean, Jameson's big book, you're right, Postmodernism, subtitled The Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. For students, I set that as reading and they read it and they expect it to be, let's say, a survey of the cultural logic of late capitalism. They've kind of misunderstood what that subtitle means. What he's saying is, what is the logic of late capitalism? The logic of capitalism, as Marx understood it, was, let's say, economic. It was all about who owned the means of production and factory owners and the workers and so on. Mandel is saying, and Jameson is saying, that the logic of late capitalism is cultural. Mm -hmm. It's not that there isn't an economy anymore, these things that no longer matter, but the, we're now, to understand it, we have to understand it, we have to grasp it in a kind of cultural way. And that brings in questions of representation and so on, new modes of art. So I think if what you were saying was you don't buy it that we don't have to invent new forms of art. And you, again, that, that's yeah. when, you know, Postmodernism was a big deal, and people argued heartily uh, over it in the late 80s and maybe into the early 90s. It seems a long time ago now, somehow. That was one of the key fault lines. There were people like Jameson saying postmodernism is something distinctive. It's the 
it is the manifestation of this new cultural logic. And then there were people on the other side of the debate saying, no, all the things you identify as postmodern, statistically and formally, there are lots of examples of this going back through Melville and Tristan Shandy, and it's always been with us. It's just another iteration. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the slogan that perhaps Jameson's most famous for is always historicize. It's the two-word slogan he puts at the beginning of The Political Unconscious. And that, I think, is something that Robinson, as a writer, believes. I think he thinks everything is, it's not just that everything is a situation, everything is a historical situation, and that we're in the position we're in now because of the history that's that's led up to this moment and the ways that these things are embedded. So, yeah, you were saying earlier it's very hard to spoil this novel. It's kind of a spoiler to say it starts really grim with yeah. really... I think the only chapter is amazing. It's some of the best writing that he's done in a long time. I, I was interested that you'd. I was interested that you'd said that because I'm. I, I only. I only sort of agree, which I guess means I don't agree. Okay. But um. But, but so it but, starts pretty badly, and there's a there's a huge heat wave, and millions die, yeah. and the, the climate is collapsing around, and the novel picks this kind of quite sluggish at times path mm -hmm. towards a more hopeful future. And the novel's really about that. It's not about the hero's journey. It's not about the kind of conventional things. It's not particularly about exciting incidents and um, ingenious plotting. It's about how we have to rethink how everything is organized. So there is an awful lot, not just on kind of climate science, which you might expect, but an awful lot on um, carbon coin and quantitative easing and you know, finances and how we can restructure capitalism and shareholders and tax law what is it that that one of the chapters begins taxes are taxes interesting. are interesting yeah <laughs> it's a great way to start <laughs> like, a chapter i wish is, i had the yeah. balls to write that yeah just throw down a challenge here really like but he pulls it <laughs> off I, I i so i think he really pulls that stuff off and i think a lot of what you just described i labeled it in a way as like it's like he's he's creating a um he's talking about the natural ecosystem of the world and it's it's a very optimistic novel it has to be said it's really there's something that i think is really exciting about the optimism of it that i really really liked um but he's also so he's talking about the like ecological disaster and trying to avert it and he's talking about the the natural ecosystem but he's also talking about the political ecosystems that and and as you've said sort of economic ecosystems and everything that interact with that natural ecosystem in a, in a way that I think all of these different mini essays and and then some standard narrative and um, you know you follow a character and then they drop away for a bit and they come back and it never really resolves into a beginning middle end plot that makes you feel satisfied at the end but it does feel like I feel like the end of the novel does offer a kind of satisfaction that something has happened yeah but it does all these different things and and maps out an ecosystem and and, and shows all kinds of little parts of it at the same time. And he sometimes, I mean, so I guess I'm sort of starting to turn to thinking a little bit about um, the style or, and structure, I suppose, both of this novel. And I think what's interesting to me is those those mini essays. Like there's one chapter 64 I have written down is where he gives like a, a little, it's like a little essay on, Keynes on the the euthanasia of the rentier class, um, and then there's the one taxes are interesting, and there's there's various other essays like this. There's the whole thing about blockchain, and he's really fascinated by blockchain. That's one of the things I don't yeah. quite understand about Robinson why he, th he thinks blockchain is going to be the solution to so many of our so problems. But what, yeah, what's funny is I 
um, while I was reading this novel, uh, a couple of friends of mine in a WhatsApp group were talking a lot about blockchain. At the same time I was reading the novel, and I kept saying to them, you got to read this novel. Because <laughs> one of them is really interested in himself for professional reasons and so on. But I don't I don't entirely see it either. But this kind of debate between fiat money and and blockchain as as a replacement for that is... I can see why it's an idea that's that is of interest to a speculative fiction writer. I don't know that I totally get it myself. But anyway, there's also parts of this novel that where that doesn't work. There's lots of little what you called in your blog like Socratic dialogue, sort of jaunty Socratic dialogue things that that read like those irritating things you get in newspapers where it's like, let's explain this issue of the day in a kind yeah. of funny, I don't understand. Um oh, let me explain kind of way that those really irritated me. What did you What did you think of the kind of various kind of riddling little chat little sections? I hated the riddles as well. What am I? And it turns out I'm a photon or something. Yeah, I hated the riddles as well, but I felt like and I and I I so the ones the the little Socratic dialogue things. I thought, why didn't you just do these as as your kind of essay mode? Because I really liked his essay mode, Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it worked as a as a aesthetic kind of strategy to fit with all the rest of the the novel which I'm going to try and come back to in a second as well. But then like the, the little riddles I just thought were kind of like, uh, what, you know, do I need this? I don't know. I, it didn't really do anything for me. You could take them out. And I think the novel would be just as good or better. Yeah, and the no, same thing so. the, the, with the Socratic dialogue things. I thought just rewrite these as essays and I'd be much happier. Sorry, go ahead. But I mean, I'm assuming that he's thinking my, my worry is this is going to come across as just monolithic mm-hmm. and that he's perhaps overcompensating. In fact, I go further than perhaps. I think he's clearly, overcompensating and yeah. trying to be as varied as he can and the different delivery modes he has for all mm-hmm. the information he's trying to pass over to us it makes it a bit scrappy i think in places whilst not not whilst not relieving the what is quite often i mean i hate to say this this was drummed out of me at school i was told i was never allowed to use this as a as a phrase of aesthetic judgment <laughs> but i'm gonna I go past that and say it's often quite a boring novel <laughs> and I don't really mind that. I don't mind a novel boring me, actually, if it's still kind of informative, I'm getting stuff out of it. And there's a there's a part in which I think, again, maybe this is a stretch, I kind of admire Robinson for being willing to, to bore his readers, because that's part of the larger question, isn't it? This is a book, it's not just a, on the level of content addressing climate change, which is a really pressing and you know, enormous and significant topic and suggesting ways we might remedy it. It's also trying to address our habits of telling stories mm-hmm. about disasters and so on. It's kind of what I say in the blog, that the stories that we are addicted to now are con- constantly diverting and entertaining and exciting. You can't go and sit in a, a movie theater and watch a movie without the director pushing you in the shoulder every 20 seconds saying oh look here's another explosion look here's something else exciting and i think he's kind of right that that's not a healthy way i mean it's fine there's nothing wrong with the occasional sugar rush of an exciting action-filled storyline but there there must be we must have the option as writers to write other kinds of stories and some of those other kinds of stories might be quite info heavy and quite dull but also really significant and important for this large question yeah yeah. In fact, you've you've spoken right to the heart of a passage that I marked that I that I thought might be interesting to read out. And and, and so it's turning out to be, I think, where where I think a couple of these things come together. 
One is what you've just been talking about thematically about about the kinds of stories we tell and how we tell them, and the and the other is is how that relates to Kim Stanley Robinson's aesthetic choices and these kinds of the ways that info dumps work as a narrative strategy and the different kinds of info dumps that he has and whatever. So here's, I'm going to read two paragraphs from the end of chapter 89. Okay. Well, Pat, do you want me to read the paragraphs from my copy? Oh no, wait, I can't do that because I gave my copy to you. Oh, we could have, otherwise we could have alternated paragraphs or sentences, (laughs) or we could have done the police in different voices. It would have been amazing. (laughs) Well, let me just take care of this for you then, Adam. Um, Thank you. That's very kind, Doug. You really should bring your book to class. Yeah, I know uh, I should, but I think it's going to sound better in your rich baritone voice. Uh, thanks. Um, so this, this, I think this, this, these two paragraphs are interesting because they move from a from a real an info dump, which is also my favorite kind of one of my favorite kind of aesthetic sentences, the the epic list, um, and it, and it moves into something else. So let's just I'll just read it. So this was the financial and the carbon situation. What Mary thought of as the two macro signals, the global indexes that mattered. And at the meso and micro levels, the good projects that were being undertaken were so numerous, they couldn't be assembled into a single list, although they tried. Regenerative, easy for me to say, regenerative ag, landscape restoration, wildlife stewardship, Mondragon-style co-ops, garden cities, universal basic income and services, job guarantees, refugee release and repatriation, climate justice and equity actions, first people's support, all these tended to be regional or localized, but they were happening everywhere. And more than ever before, it was time to gather the world and let them see it. Sick at heart, she was going to declare victory. Declare victory as if sticking a knife in the heart of her worst enemy with a feeling not unlike posting a suicide note. And if the real truth was that, in fact, they had somehow lost, then she was going to try to see it to see to it that the evil ones were winning a Pyrrhic victory. They were going to be the losers of a Pyrrhic victory, and the losing side of a Pyrrhic victory could be said to have won. They were therefore the winners of a Pyrrhic defeat, because they were never going to give up. Never, never, never. History was going to go like this. Lose, 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 win. And the evil ones in the world could go down under the weight of their damned Pyrrhic victory. They could go fuck themselves, murdering cowardly bastards that they were. I think it's a really great two paragraphs that starts in this real technocratic way. And the and the heroic list there is all stuff that he's that he's dramatized in various different ways up to this point in the novel. This is pretty late on in the novel. Um, and then just moves to that more personal through Mary's view on this, she's one of the big, one of the main characters of the novel, and she's the head of this ministry for the future of the title of the book, and and moves into that emotional side of it from her point of view. I think it, that passage is to me really great and really nice piece of writing that that shows what he's up to aesthetically. I think. So that's the that's the, the dilemma, isn't it? He he needs to do more than just communicate lots of interesting intellectual factoids. He needs to communicate that this is something to care about something that we should and in many cases do genuinely care about i wondered if that exactly what you're talking about there we could have done with a bit more of that yeah but then in part i think that's because the 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 way the book opens if 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 i'm hearing you correctly doug i think i liked this more than you did i liked it a lot i thought it was really effective i thought it was really it gripped me in a kind of horrifying way and it the as the temperature rises it becomes more and more inevitable that all these people are going to die and then people die on this extraordinary scale and it's a it's a real gut punch of an opener and the problem with that structurally is 
so much of the rest of the novel is quite dry and ratiocinative and thinking through in an intellectual way how we can best organise these complicated systems. And I wondered if it lacked a little bit of that more melodramatic affect, exactly what you're pointing to in that passage. That also raises something interesting that about those moments that are more narrative in this novel and, and some of the things that he doesn't pursue. So I actually, I liked the opening, but to, to be honest, what part of my, I had two kind of problems with it. One, I thought it was just a little bit too densely written. I know that he's trying to convey this sense of, of oppressive heat and so on, but there was some part of me felt like it was, it was doing it a bit too much to work. I mean, it, it is really effective, don't get me wrong. But also the, the other part of my objection is just it's really stupid and it's a, one of my eight million pet peeves about prose style. The second sentence <laughs> of this novel, Frank May got off his mat and padded over to look out the window. I despise it when people pad places in novels. <laughs> padded. This, I think this was invented in the Unless 1990s. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But like, I think in the 1990s, some author invented this and everyone else went, ooh, that's so poetic. And everyone, like lots of writers do this and it makes me angry every single time. And for the second sentence, I was like, it put me in a bad mood. I was like, what is this novel that Adam has loaned me? Uh, and I got over it eventually. But the other thing is that there's 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 other parts. Again, you talk about this in your, in your um, review that where he doesn't really follow through on some of the narrative possibilities of what he's done. So there's, there's a scene where, or a chapter really, where the Davos Economic Forum or whatever it's called has been um, hijacked by terrorists who just sort of oh, kidnap, yeah. kidnap the world's economic and business leaders and, and make them kind of make their own meals for a week and, and do some like weird sort of Maoist re-education um, re camps. Stuff, yeah. And then it all just stops. And, and there's never any... There's never any follow-up to it, really. There's no. It doesn't seem to have any consequence in the novel. It's like this is an idea that he threw out there, trying to see it like a thought experiment, but it doesn't pay off. And it annoyed me that it didn't pay off because there's lots of other stuff in the novel that does pay off. You get like you get a whole thing about carbon capturing through farming practices and stuff, and then later on you get this isolated. There's lots of anonymous voices in this novel, and I liked those anonymous voices. And there's an anonymous voice of someone who has who has converted their farm in. Nebraska or the Dakotas or something and is talking about what they've done and how they're doing it. And, and those kinds of things really worked for me. But that, the kind of world eco-terrorism, sort of earth first writ large, it didn't seem that well thought through a lot of the time. There's some point where they fly drones into airplanes and it doesn't seem to matter. No, no. There's a, there's a, I think it's a, there's a fault line that I'm not sure Robinson knows the answer to any more than, let's say, Dickens did back in his day. Whether we think Things are messed up in the world. Things could be better. So how do we do that? Well, the world is run by a small group of powerful people. If we could just get them to change their the, the way they're running things, then everything will be better. Alternatively, it doesn't really matter who's in charge, who's in power. We couldn't. It's no good as kidnapping President Biden and forcing him to enact all sorts of radical green legislation because that's not how things are. Things are actually this incredibly complicated system in which we're all embedded from the top to the bottom. And we have to completely restructure that system, which is a, a far mm -hmm. more intimidating and a far more kind of depressing, dispiriting prospect, really. And that's the difference between early Dickens and late Dickens. Early Dickens thought, well, there's a few fat cat plutocrats. Uh, if they would just become benevolent, then the whole of society would be perfect. And then as a later writer, he understands, no, it's, we're all stuck in this systematic web which is partly historic and partly 
just the complexity of modern life and modern society. And I think Robinson's sympathies are kind of with that view, but he can't quite can't quite step away from the idea that perhaps we could just grab all the world yeah. leaders and just make them see things differently, give them a good shake, and then no, and that's that's just facile, isn't it? That's just not. He's not living up to the imaginative possibilities of his otherwise really of complicated uh, novelistic vision. Yeah, and and like what's interesting in what you say there is that he doesn't need to he doesn't need to shirk some of those responsibilities or cop out on those things because because the optimism of this novel is really complicated and when it works works really really brilliantly. I think I don't really want to talk too much about the end of the novel because I think it's worth letting listeners experience it themselves but I think that the end of this novel is actually the most beautiful part of writing of the novel there's you know it it's not giving anything away plot-wise to say that Mary steps down from her role and takes this um takes it has to take a journey from San Francisco where she is for a meeting back to Europe and and that the telling of that journey is just really beautiful to me and 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 shows the kind of the complications of I guess the war between his pessimism or, or those entanglements and the optimism that he wants to excavate and promote um, really nicely. So it's it's funny you've mentioned Dickens now. I mentioned Frederick Jameson earlier. The two writers that really came to mind. Um, this is one of the other dumb things I have to say about this novel. I guess um, when I was reading was um, Kurt Vonnegut and Don DeLillo neither of whom really jump out of these pages as obvious touching points with with Kim Stanley Robinson. But let me tell you why. Vonnegut for that optimism. Because Vonnegut is a writer who really relentlessly tries to hold a an optimistic version, or vision, excuse me, an optimistic vision of of the world and the humanity while also constantly very upfront acknowledging the absurdity of that optimism in a way you know or the evidence to its contrary at any rate and I, it's one of the things i always loved about vonnegut and still do actually and delillo just because of the it, it's back to the jameson thing really is because of the way in which the novels and 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 a number of delillo's novels try to contain huge huge numbers of things within a single story. So thinking of uh, novels like Underworld or Libra that, that are just trying to triangulate tons and tons, you know, more than triangulate because it's more than three things, but like tons and tons of things all into a single narrative. And I think there's this really reminded me of some of that. And I suppose I was just also just thinking about the garbage side of like the waste management theme and motifs yeah. in, in okay. Underworld as well. So it's it's partly just superficial, but like I mean stylistically he's nothing like either of those writers. Um but that but those kinds of slightly more ethereal what's the word I want? Um just from a vision standpoint or the sense of vision that I get from the novel brought those two writers to mind anyway. No, that's really interesting. So one of the ways I might think about that is the the, this, the distinction that's often made, this kind of common sense distinction between fantasy writing, writing of the fantastic, whatever that might be, on the one hand, and realism, literary realism, on the other. That 
a literary realist, particularly kind of a classic realist who comes out of the late 19th century, someone like Zola, when he's doing his Rougeau Macar novels, he's specifically aiming for a documentary verisimilitude. He says, I want people in 100 years to be able to read these novels and they, they can, and understand exactly what it was like being alive in France under Napoleon III in 1865 or whatever it might be. And to that end, his style is all the things you were talking about earlier, enormous great lists of things that you go to a market and it's a fish market and he'll describe every kind of fish that's on sale. And he did enormous amounts of research to get all this right so we can sort of trust his reportage. But stylistically, it's really, it's hyper detailed. And I can sort of see that with DeLillo. De DeLillo, he's kind of, he's a realist writer who's kind of embarrassed to be a realist. So yeah. he does lots of that stuff, but in this deliberately kind of, oblique often really funny but quite obliquely kind of cool and and slightly left field stylistic that's just trying to describe delillo's prose it's a strange thing yeah it's weird i don't particularly like it actually that's not a traditional thing you do in fantasy in fantasy if you're if you're reading a grim's fairy tale you don't get enormous amounts of detail you get a few archetypal figures and enough kind of color to evoke that sense of estrangement and magic and a novel like, I don't know, Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn, since we're talking about American fiction, is a classic fantasy novel, but it's not written in a realist style. It's written in this slightly strange amalgam, actually. Partly it's very lyric and, and poetical, and he's, you know, he never gets past a, a metaphor where he doesn't find a striking new way of making the image vivid, and he's interested in magic, in this enchantment, and tries to write an enchanting style. It's also quite witty and worldly wise. It's that odd combination of the two but you get a sense of the there are different literary strategies for different styles of writing which is what's odd about science fiction the science fiction is a literature of the fantastic it's not describing the world as it actually is uh, it's describing an imagined world like fantasy but more often than not not exclusively but more often than not writers of science fiction inhabit a realist style or i suppose mm -hmm. you'd have to call it a quasi-realist style and they give you enormous amounts of information this goes back to this question this is where the, the alkalinity of mars comes back into yeah, play exactly yeah. and i don't know if that's I, mean, I write science fiction but that's not the kind of science fiction i write because it seems to me a kind of nervous overcompensation or you know the people will yeah willingly suspend their disbelief about this nonsense story about rocket ships flying to jupiter so i shall have to give them lots and lots of specific details so that uh, as if that, that will somehow win them over but that is, that's always been Robinson's approach. He's always written science fiction, but with a, a kind of realist style. Not a realist form, because he's always been interested in these attempts to rejig the kind of conventional storyline. I mean, that's one of the differences, I suppose, between Moby Dick, one of the many differences between Moby Dick and a book like Ministry for the Future is, although it does give the reader lots and lots of stuff about whaling and you know, mm -hmm. fish and all that, it also gives the reader this really powerful through-line narrative yeah. that accelerates as you read into the book, and it gets really exciting as he's chasing the white whale and they're heading to the, the new one, which we shan't spoil here. And there isn't really a through-line <laughs> gripping narrative of, of that kind. No, I mean, funnily enough, novel. there's there's even less plot in this than there is. Like, you know, the one of the things people say about Moby Dick is like, well, it's, in fact, I've said it myself, it's, it's kind of a novella or a short novel's worth of plot yeah. with all this other stuff. This has even an even thinner plot than that, mm. um, which doesn't bother me in the slightest, actually. Because um, I always feel, get the feeling with this that it's going someplace. And I, I wonder whether some of that is one of the things that for me, 
I really liked about the novel was there's a huge range of characters in it, actually. So it mostly follows this guy, Frank, that we meet at the beginning during the heat wave and Mary, who's the head of the Ministry for the Future. But there's a few other recurring characters and lots of other characters who only show up for one chapter or so. And they're, they're mostly anonymous. But he's, I think he's really good at characterizing people very simply. And they only, get, they only ever get characterized through what they do and what they say. Um, in particular, those anonymous and semi-anonymous narrators that, that come in. And I, I really like that stuff. And I really like that how that, would, I guess, is a, a more of a straightforwardly realistic mode of writing and storytelling fits in with all these other things that we've been talking about that are much less about literary realism of any kind and are more about trying to coordinate information or give a sense of uh, a big and complicated world. I don't know though, because it's it, it's always a losing game, isn't it? And it is. It's also a Dickensian thing. And you're right. It's a Delillo thing. They look at the world and they say, "Well, the world is really, really populous. It's really varied. We have to give some flavour of that." And the novels that we write, we have to put in hundreds and hundreds of characters, and they all have to be variegated and vivid. And I don't know. I think that you can't put seven billion people into a novel. <laughs> you haven't. You just haven't got any ambition. I haven't tried yet. That's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. I mean, to be honest, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I don't like that ultimately defeats me with Delillo's novels, to be honest. I've read quite a few of them, not all of them, but quite a few. And, and the thing that I always don't like is like, at what point could you not just write one story? <laughs> just tell me yeah. a story. Uh, it, it bothered me less with this one. I think partly because this, uh, you know, his writing style is nowhere near as dense as Delillo's. It's nowhere near as self-consciously trying to do that, whatever that self-conscious stylistic thing that you were alluding to earlier is yeah um and this is this is just the ministry of the future is a much more readable book in, in a very simple way i think oh no it is readable it is and maybe that's it's hard to know isn't it maybe that is one of the ways in which the novel which you and i both write is evolving that there's been in my lifetime there's been a, a renaissance in non-fiction writing some of it really good a lot of popular science books, a lot of nature books, actually, a lot of memoirs. Not that these things have suddenly magically been invented out of thin air, but they've really come to the fore, and they're now a large part of what literary culture is. And maybe this is some amalgam of that, some crossover between the more conventional stylings of a, a novel and something that's a bit more like a popular science primer on, well, on, on climate science and, mm -hmm. and you know, blockchain and quantitative easing and all the other stuff he talks about yeah i mean in that in that sense it really is self-consciously as a novel so like separating it from its author who obviously cares about these you know climate change and all these things but as a novel it has and if I guess if we can, if we're allowed to say that novels have consciousness of some kind, I don't know. But it's it's very aware of the way it sits as as a thing in the world that like this is a book that I want that that is when it's read is a kind of practical guide of some kind. It's a utopian guide. It's a it's an optimistic guide. It's offering lots of ideas that won't work. But it's also giving you a sense through that storytelling of of the plausibility of some of these ideas and the idea that, that some of these ideas are worth pursuing and worth trying to make real in the world. And so it has that kind of how-to guide, 
practical sense of its own realness. I don't know if that's yeah, no, that makes sense. And also, it does have this it has this this novelistic virtue of it's aware of storytelling conventions. It's aware of how often when we tell ourselves stories about apocalypse and catastrophe, which is what climate change is, we happen to be living in the middle of it. But when we tell those stories, we'll often tell them as a phrase I use in the in the blog that I picked up from J.R.R. Tolkien, EU catastrophe, EU catastrophe, you meaning good in Greek. And the EU catastrophe, as I understand it, is exactly that. Everything is going terribly wrong. We're all going to die. We're all doomed. And at the very last minute, just when we thought everything was lost, we pluck victory out of the jaws of defeat. Frodo throws the ring in Mount Doom and we're all saved. Or in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story shape you see all around you all the time. The gigantic asteroid is hurtling towards the Earth and we're all doomed. We're all going to die. But at the last minute, Bruce Willis manages to you know, do whatever he does in that movie and smash I was going to say Ben Affleck, which shows you that I haven't watched these movies. I, I thought Ben <laughs> Affleck saves the world, or does he... Anyway. Batman saves the world, of course he does. Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That there's the, the current craze and vogue is for superhero movies, that there's some yearning for, well, can't, can't some hero come and sort this out for us? And it's really, to Robinson's credit, that he refuses that. So you're talking about Mary... Mary Murphy, who's kind of the closest the novel has to a protagonist, although, as you say, the characterization is really quite remarkably dissipated across a whole range of often unnamed characters. But Mary Murphy is one of the kind of focalizing figures, and she's a powerful woman. She's in an important position, and uh, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, really. But Robinson knows that just being in a position of power doesn't mean that you can actually do anything that really matters. So a lot of what she's doing is is... Kind of nudging and working behind the scenes and trying to help things along but she's in many in many ways quite a passive character she's not a hero who's able mm. to say I, by jingo i've got it this will press this red button and climate change will go away yeah and well and frank a lot of frank's um turmoil in the novel is is over the fact that he can't be that hero himself he's to some degree at the beginning of the novel trying to be a kind of hero through his mm. the work that he's doing and and he comes face to face with the with the the fact that he can't be. Um, I'm really I'm so badly now. Just want to sing. You know, we don't need another hero. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to do that. I wonder if this is a, a good place to wrap up our discussion and and say um, thank you, Adam, for joining me on Novel Romantics and for covering a lot of territory on this super interesting novel um that i hope oh, people thank, go thanks and read. for inviting me and i feel i feel listeners will feel cheated now as if we're bringing the guillotine down just to stop you bursting into song <laughs> well it's um <laughs> once lockdowns are across the world are over i'll appear on stages all across europe and the united states singing just that song as a one-man show something I to look forward to <laughs> adam thanks big, so much for joining me hit. thanks Doug. that's great i really enjoyed that thank you Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host 
not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Sorry, I just got a frog in my throat, um, but not a, not a whale in my throat, which would be very bad. Uh.